Hey, I'm Raji Sohal. We feature a few stories from the day's live broadcast right here on the podcast. And coming up, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 surges in the U.S. A scientist criticizes the nutrition behind plant-based fake meats. And the president of BC-based company London Drugs tells us how the company is preparing to deal with the effects of Omicron. Let's listen in. Well, one of the weird things I've found with the pandemic has been oscillating between this microscopic lens where we've all been forced to live smaller lives under all these restrictions, right? Like staying at home, socializing with only a few people and so on. And then we've got this global view where we see how the pandemic has been raging around the world and where many sadly still don't even have access to vaccines. Well, despite being one of the most powerful nations in the world, our neighbor to the south is facing a current crisis with the Omicron variant of COVID-19. And joining me now to talk about it is Global News Washington correspondent Jennifer Johnson. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Raji. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us this morning. Jennifer, how is the U.S. doing with the new variant? Uh, Not well. Uh, We are averaging around 600,000 new cases per day of COVID-19. That's over the past about eight, eight or nine days. And so hospitals, once again, are getting swamped with patients. Uh, One out of four American hospitals now we're reporting a critical staff shortage um, as COVID-19 patients fill up rooms and about 100 to 125,000 Americans are currently hospitalized with COVID-19. So the situation is very, very bad here. That's the highest level that it's been in a year. And the numbers of people who are testing positive per day is the highest we've ever seen in the pandemic. And in terms of those hospitalizations, do we know how many of them are critical care? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, With the Omicron variant, not as many are in ICU units. But um, 70% of the unvaccinated are hospitalized, and a majority of them are in ICU units. Um, We're not hearing that that many hospitals across the country are completely out of ICU beds, as we did with the Delta variant. But certainly the ICU units are filled with COVID patients. And as I said, 70% of them are unvaccinated. Jennifer, what are vaccination rates looking like there? You know, Roger, that's a good question. We seem to be holding steady in a place that isn't great. So about 62%, 63% of Americans, um, eligible Americans, are fully vaccinated. The problem is the partially vaccinated is around 73 74%. And then you end up with the, you know, 26% or more that is completely unvaccinated. So, and those numbers are not changing that much, even though we're seeing variant after variant. And that's the biggest problem with the United States. We've got this portion of the population that just refuses to get vaccinated, even though they're getting very, very sick. It's interesting. It seems like every time we do a story and we're able to interview somebody who's actually in critical care or coming out of critical care, they regret not getting the vaccine because they've been in the hospital for so long. It's usually, you know, between a month and two months. Um, And they've been very, very sick and heroic measures being taken. But we still have this portion of the population that just refuses to be vaccinated. And we do continue to hear stories of that that portion of the population that is refusing to be vaccinated. Uh, Are they standing still for the most part in those views? Or do we see that, that that's changing? 
You know, I would say for the most part, they're sticking to their guns and staying with those views. And, you know, the, the problem with this country is this started out being political. The previous president made this political, um, you know, calling it just the flu and worse terminology like, you know, the China flu and indicated over and over that it wasn't that bad. And so um, people who were reluctant to get vaccines in the first place were like, well, I can get through this. The problem is, you know, America's lost almost 850,000 people to this virus. And But even though the numbers, you know, people hear the numbers over and over. I mean, 1,800 people died on Friday from COVID-19. Um, that's just in one day. It doesn't seem to sway the people who are not getting vaccinated. They just... You know, I, I have conversations with people and I say, do you take Advil? Do you take Tylenol? Do you know exactly what's in it? And they'll say no. And, I'm say, and then I say, well, you know, none of us know exactly what's in the medicines we take, yet we trust the science, to, you know, and, and then take them. And that's true of vaccines. But in this case, it became political. And, and thus, we have this portion of the population that's very reluctant to get it. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, we know that life conditions can change pretty fast across state lines there. Rules change, laws change over state lines. Are there some states that are being praised right now for how they're handling the pandemic? Well, I have to say, I live in Maryland. For the most part, there's been um, a lot of praise for our Republican governor. He was very strict when the, Delta, when, when the pandemic first began in terms of shutting things down and requiring masks. Um, he's just declared a code red for the hospitals here and asking people again to mask up. We have a pretty high vaccination rate. So there are some states that are doing pretty well. Other states, in the, particularly in the south, um, you know, they have huge outbreaks, a lot of problems. I mean, we featured a hospital in Branson, Missouri yesterday in our global national piece that was, they were completely out of beds, they were completely out of nurses, and they didn't have any housekeeping staff. They were asking for local residents to come in and scrub down their hospital because they simply didn't have anybody to come in. The nurses, they were asking people that were nurses in doctor's offices and nursing homes, you know, private care facilities, please come in and do a shift at the hospital. So you see pockets that are really bad and you see pockets that, you know, I would say Maryland is a pretty bad situation, but um, the leadership has been, you know, I would say widely praised for how things um, have gone on here. The problem we're also seeing, Raji, is that, People going into the hospital, this is a new phenomenon we're seeing. People going into the hospital say they have to have uh, an appendix out. They're getting COVID in the hospital. And there is a lot of backlash against the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, for reducing the isolation period from 10 days to five days because the general feeling is that nurses and doctors are going back into work and they're still contagious. So we're seeing this huge uptick in people who are in the hospital for other things and then getting COVID while in the hospital. That sounds pretty messy. What are officials saying then that can be expected in the near future? Well, they're saying that they're, well, let's put it this way. They're hoping that what South Africa saw, which was a huge uptick in cases and then a great decrease, um, you know, quick up and down spike, they're hoping that's going to happen here in America. And I'm sure you guys are hoping that's going to happen in Canada too. But um, they're expecting the peak to reach... Um, about the end of January, beginning of February. Now, some states, like Maryland, for example, and some of the New England states, East Coast states, they're ahead of that curve. So it's likely we'll see our peak maybe the third or fourth week in January. Other states are going to be, you know, first and second week of February. 
providing we follow what uh, happened in South Africa. The other problem is, you know, what's happening in America is what's being called the Great American Sickout. Five million, five million workers last week called in sick, mostly because they had COVID-19, some with the flu. Um, but you're just you're watching massive amounts of people who are calling in sick. Twenty percent of New York City police officers, a thousand police officers and firefighters and paramedics, <clears throat> excuse me, in Los Angeles County over the past few days calling in sick. So it's you know yeah. it just yeah. people don't understand the ripple effect of this, but it is a massive ripple effect. You have twenty percent of your New York City police officers out sick. That's not good. Wow. Well, thank you for uh, bringing us that report this morning, Jennifer. Raji, thanks for having me. We all know that eating more vegetables is good for us. Get as many veggie colors on your plate as you can. That's what we're always told because they're full of vitamins and minerals that we need to function our best, right? But one nutrition scientist says not so fast when it comes to going fully plant-based. And I'm sure there's some nuance there. Dr. Megan McGee is on the line. She joins us from Toronto where she lectures at McMaster University. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. So you just wrote an article called plant-based doesn't always mean healthy. First of all, I wonder what you mean by plant-based. Yeah, so we're talking here mostly about the plant-based meats. So all of those fake meats that you see out there, the Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger, the ones that are really made to substitute what an animal product meat looks like. So these products were created from plants, but they're different when you think about them from an actual pea or a soybean or a lentil or a chickpea. And so when we're talking about plant-based in this article, it's really about those fake meats and the ones that are made to substitute what an animal product looks like. Okay. Yeah, you do single out those those fake meats and you say that they're heavily processed. But a lot of folks reach for those options because well, quite frankly, some of them are really delicious these days. Like they've done uh, they've advanced a lot in terms of flavor, but people are also thinking, "Oh, this is a a healthy way for me to get my protein that's not from animal." How nutritious are these sources really? Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. So a lot of people are substituting now just to even get some meat out of their diet and to try these new protein foods. And you're right, they're marvels in the nutrition industry that you can create a fake meat burger that bleeds like an animal-based burger. I mean, that's incredible in itself. But when we talk about the nutrition, um, it's actually the Impossible Burger, for instance, it's quite comparable to what we see in a McDonald's quarter pounder patty. So From the calorie and the saturated fat level, it's pretty much the same. Um, The Impossible Burger has better cholesterol and fiber amounts. So if you're concerned about your cholesterol and fiber, that could be one option. Um, But the sodium in an Impossible Burger patty is about six times higher than what we see in a McDonald's beef patty. Um, And that's largely because, you know, they're trying to imitate the meat burger. So it makes sense, right? It's almost like two sides of one coin where on the one hand, you are trying to imitate a meat-based burger or an animal-based burger, and you do it. But in order to make it taste like that, you kind of got to add some flavor. And and unfortunately, sodium is what's skyrocketing in some of these products. Well, yeah, that's a lot of salt that you mentioned there. And and why would people want to be concerned about that amount of salt? 
So a lot of people um, hear about the salt and high blood pressure connections um, or associations, also called hypertension. So eating too much salt, which a lot of us do on a North American or a typical Western diet, um, can really not be good for your cardiovascular system. So it puts a lot of strain on the blood that's pumping throughout your body um, and can lead to elevated blood pressure. And then that in itself, if you live with that for years and years, can also lead to further cardiovascular disease and um, cardiometabolic disease later in life. So you don't want to be consuming high amounts of salt, most of us at least anyway. Um, and if you're consuming a lot of these plant-based burgers, maybe, um, then you can really have uh, some issues with your sodium intake. And what about this focus on protein? These days, a lot of people are trying to make sure that they're getting enough protein, especially if they exercise or do uh, weight-bearing exercise, they lift weights, um, they're trying to bulk up or anything like that. They need protein. So, how? But how sufficient ultimately is it for us to focus on getting protein from these fake meats? Yeah, protein is actually a really interesting um, argument with these plant-based meats. So traditionally, when we think about animal meat sources, um, it can be argued that an animal food contains all of the essential amino acids. So those are your building blocks for protein that you would need in your day, in your daily diet. So you need to consume a certain amount of these essential protein building blocks every day from your food. Your body can't make them. And so people will talk about animal foods as the complete source of protein. You can eat a burger and you can get all your amino acids for the day. So then when these plant-based meats or these fake meats came out, how do they compare when we think about um, protein and if we can get all of our protein requirements from these burgers? For that, it, it kind of depends. So soy is a complete protein, so we can get it from soy. But if you're consuming, let's say, just rice and beans, for instance, and you're not consuming any meat intake, um, then you have to make sure that throughout the whole day that you're consuming sufficient amounts of protein in a varied diet. So you can't just eat a whole bunch of pro uh, plant-based burgers throughout the day and think that you're consuming a healthy diet. Um, but at the same time, here in North America, a lot of us don't have protein challenges. We don't suffer from insufficient protein intake, and that's because we have a food system that is varied and that we can get several different food types and food products that vary in the amount of amino acids or those building blocks that we need to get every day. Um, it's a different story if you talk about, you know, like the weight lifters who need uh, or think that they need excessive amounts of protein and they take the, the protein powder after their workout yeah. or before their workout. Um, that like 1% of the population monitors their protein intake very closely. But for the most of us, we don't really have to worry about not getting enough enough protein from our diet if we eat a varied diet of different types of foods. Okay, that's interesting. What about tempeh and, and say organic sprouted tofu and that kind of thing? Yeah, so those are actually the traditional plant-based foods. And so these are the ones that kind of came onto the market before the whole plant-based burger and plant-based chicken nuggets kind of came in. And those are the types of protein foods that is recommend that are recommended by, let's say, Canada's Food Guide and the other nutrition um, recommendations out there. So, if you are looking to switch some of your meat intake and opt out of 
an animal-based food and you want to eat a more plant-based diet, those are great options, eating tofu or tempeh um, or any of the minimally processed protein foods that are made, that are based from plants. Um, there's a ton of recipes on the Canada's Food Guide re- uh, website that talk about how to cook and how to eat some of those things and make them taste good. Um, not necessarily taste like meat, like what the plant-based burger is doing, uh, but still have something that's substantial, makes you feel like you've eaten a meal, um, and tastes good. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting to know, I guess, because we can also monitor more how we make those things taste in the end, the tempeh and the sprouted tofu, because we can add our own amounts of salt and oil and whatnot. Megan, thank you so much for being with us this morning. This is a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I have wondered throughout the the last two years of this pandemic how challenging it must be for the people in charge at large retail just to constantly pivot to all the changes and restrictions. And these are folks that have to come up with smooth and efficient systems to get customers through their stores safely, but also they need to make sure that their staff are safe too throw a wildly infectious variant of COVID-19 onto that conundrum. And wow, well, what the heck do you do then? My guest joining me to talk about all that is Clint Malman. He's the president and CEO of the BC-based company, London Drugs. Good morning, Clint. Good morning, Raji. How are you? Great. I love to hear people sound so chipper this early on a Sunday morning. So thanks for giving the uh, Sunday show listeners some time today. It's it's our pleasure. I am curious about this. Dr. Bonnie, Bonnie Henry has wonder, uh, she's wondered aloud about people getting off the workforce for sick days. Uh, she's told employers to be prepared for as much as a third of their workforce to be sick on any given day. What does that mean for your company, London Drugs? Yeah, I, Roger, I think it's one of those yet another crisis in the community that we have always had to prepare for, whether it be wildfires or floods or the many issues that have hit Western Canadians over a period of time, we have a standing business continuity uh, committee, and this is no different, just a lot more, of course, concerning. So we have basically a focus of planning, prevention, and response to events that come up, whether they be the individual waves during the pandemic or the actual pandemic itself. So, you know, we've, our planning committee has over 3,000 hours to date of just planning, uh, coming together, multifunctional, um, figuring out different ways that we can operate the company and keeping our customers and staff safe. And uh, we also participate in a number of government and industry associations to share best practices. You know, that's like Emergency Management BC, Retail Council of Canada, BC Pharmacists Association, and any regional health authorities. And that's just on the planning side. Um, The second part, because you can't always just respond, you have to think about the long game. And so we've had a lot of prevention policies, like we were one of the first employers to have a mandatory vaccination policy that we um, introduced way back in August. And those type of things that were very controversial at the time uh, come back to pay you well because, of course, our staff, if they do get sick uh, and through their vaccinations, they're only getting mild symptoms as opposed to those that aren't vaccinated. 
we wear N95 masks at, at work now. Um, we do daily health screening questionnaires. We do rapid testing in some areas of the company, and we have for uh, a, a long time in areas like our distribution center or pharmacy. Um, all those, you know, training, communication, all those help you set the strong foundation for when an event like this, uh, Omicron variant, is is happening. So we we worst case scenario, uh, we do a triage and multi tier approach, and all with the singular focus of keeping people with access to their prescriptions and other critical medications and other essential goods like food uh, for the communities that we serve because our our customers have been so kind and generous to us over the years. And so I can speak a little bit more detail of that if you'd like. Well, in terms of the workforce itself, are, is London Drugs prepared uh, for it dropping down to, say, having to work with a third of your workforce gone? Yeah, we do. Um, and so we take a triage and multi-tiered approach to this. Fortunately, if there's a silver lining to all of this in retail, this is happening as we enter one of the slowest times in retail, right after the Christmas peak of, of sales and customers in our store. So traditionally, this we uh, start to see uh, less business at this time of year, which means that we uh, don't need the staffing we traditionally do. So that's a huge help for us. We have capacity with our staff. And the second thing is being a multi-unit retailer, it gives us a, a huge advantage over uh, some of the smaller retailers, which I, my heart just breaks for if you're a, a single um, independent retailer that doesn't have the access to transferring staff, for example, uh, amongst stores. Um, if we need to, we can reduce the hours of a store or department. Um, and the last case, uh, worst case scenario, is, is in a in areas where we have multiple locations in a town or an area, um, we would close one store to, and transfer the staff to keep the other operating. And those are pretty okay. drastic measures, um, mm-hmm. but we've planned for it and we have the ability to do it. And uh, we've got an incredible caring staff who want to see the company successful, but more importantly, want to see their customers well taken care of they know how scary it is for our customers as it is for their own families. And so they, they really understand what, what, what it is that they can do to help get through this. Yeah. And, and how worried are your staff? Do, do they get the sense that London Drugs has their back? Yeah, we, we routinely measure our staff, and, and we're very grateful that uh, they've given us very high marks. Uh, we've had our highest ever scores for our engagement surveys, and one of the strongest things that they've said from the beginning is they, they see that Lennon Drugs has taken a very precautionary approach, a very, very high bar for their safety. We're not perfect. Uh, we have to rely on the compliance of our staff, but we routinely audit it and, and ensure whatever we can do to, for their safety. Um, it's probably one of the biggest challenges in staff has been some unfortunate behavior by customers throughout the pandemic. This right. isn't unique to the pandemic. We've seen that retail staff have taken a lot of abuse in the last five years. There's, there's something happening in our communities that is really making frontline retail staff a bit of a target for those that are whatever is going on for them. Um, 
that's probably their their greatest concern is that asking for the public's understanding and uh, patience and uh, good decorum when they're in our stores because if they do for example they're having to operate slower uh, to make sure that everyone is safe or we don't have the staffing we'd normally do um, we're counting on the public to understand we're trying to be open for them uh, to get their essentials and and the vast majority of customers are just wonderful and so appreciative but there's always those few that it can be just that one negative interaction that sends that staff person off that doesn't want to uh, be there because they don't feel safe not necessarily from omnicron but from the the verbal attacks or physical attacks that have happened Clint, you mentioned uh, work staff, uh, workforce and staffing issues. What other problems do you anticipate arising that you're going to have to manage? Well, one of the ones that's really obvious to a lot of customers is, of course, the supply chain issues. So um, that can be international. It's nature. We just got a notice uh, late in the week that one of the major ports in China, um, Nangbo, is is shutting due to uh, COVID outbreaks. Fortunately, we don't import a lot of things from uh, China, so it it doesn't affect us. But we're getting notifications from, say, um, manufacturing plants in eastern Canada that they're having to reduce capacity due to workforces. So trucking is a great example uh, of where people always underestimate and underappreciate that those in the trucking industry that keeps goods flowing. Trains, all those type of, of uh, areas of the supply chain that are interlinked, when one part starts to either produce less or we can't uh, get it to the stores as quickly due to staffing areas, those have a knock-on effect and we have to, to plan. A great example of that is, is N95 masks. I mean, obviously we've seen the demand from the community go skyrocketing over these last several weeks. Um, fortunately, unlike at the very start of the pandemic where all N95 masks were used for healthcare workers, um, there is manufacturing capacity, but we've had to bring on about three additional N95 suppliers just to help us keep up with the demand. So those are the type of planning uh, issues and response issues that we go through. Okay. Well, thank you so much for uh, explaining that all to us, Clint. Yeah, Ranji, I'm, I'm happy to do so. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.